0: Welcome to episode number 39 of The Thermal. I'm your host Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, Matthias Schunk tells us what it's like to crash a JS-1 at 100 kilometers per hour and survive. It's a hell of a story not to be missed. And we hear from Dutch pilot Jeroen van Dijk and his epic 2022 summer flying his LS3. Jeroen flew not just one, but 2,000 kilometer flights out of his home base, the Amsterdam Gliding Club. That's all on episode number 39 of The Thermal. German contest pilot Matthias Schunk is lucky to be alive. In January, Matthias survived hitting the ground at high speed and then having his glider disintegrate around him. Matthias was taking part in the qualifying round of the sailplane Grand Prix in Worcester, South Africa, when it all went badly sideways. He is now back home in Germany, which is where I reached him. Hello, Matthias. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. How are you feeling now that you've had some time to recuperate?
1: Yeah, thank you for being your guest. Actually, I'm still in hospital. I'm now in Murnau in Germany, which is close to my hometown. And it sounds maybe a little bit funny. It's just another hospital, not a hospital in Cape Town. But it's feeling a little bit like to be at home.
0: Right, you're closer to the actual home, and it's it's a mental thing. I understand. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely, it's a mental thing, and so also the body uh, gets better.
0: Yeah. So, talk to me about the extent of your injuries. If you're you're still in hospital, and what's your what's your prognosis?
1: The prognosis is pretty good, so there should be anything for a long term. Right now, I have. Uh, broken lumber, the second lumber is broken, and I got a, uh, how, how, how can I say, some metal in it. Mm-hmm. And there will be a second operation in a couple of weeks or maybe in a couple of months because that's not the final thing in. Right. So, so but right now it looks like I'm going to leave the hospital for a reha within yeah maybe next week
0: or so Reha- rehabilitation where they help you walk again yeah. and do that sort of stuff right right I,
1: I do some training of course as well now here i got physio and some power training mm-hmm. but after lying just four weeks you lost a lot of muscles i can tell you
0: yeah 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 <laughs> but at least you're motivated to get better so that that makes a big difference
1: yeah, of course. I'm I'm really motivated, and as soon as I know it's going to be home, everything went much better.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. So, Matthijs, to take us back to to January when this this accident happened, what what were you flying, and what actually happened that day? Yeah,
1: I was flying at a
0: qualifying Grand Prix in Worcester. with a JS
1: one, and. Actually, the story started just after briefing, as I recognized that the last turning point was just 30 kilometers away from the uh, finish line, and it was just on the top of the mountain and around 1,600 meters. Mm -hmm. Wooster is about 200 meters. And I figured out that you have to be at least 1,300 meters to reach the turn points the 500 meters radius. And actually, I was just one of uh was a, wasn't too much pilots to recognized this problem before because as we come there, Oscar Gudrian asked in the radio, "Oh, how we can make it to come to the turn point so Oscar, who flew about twenty world championships, didn't recognize it ahead mm-hmm. The problem was. Then we were in around about 1000 meters and we were climbing, not really good. And then I remembered a, a rule, a special rule of the Grand Prix, which says you get 300 seconds penalty if you don't reach the turn point. What I didn't remember exactly was how close I have to fly to the turn point to get the, the penalty. I was thinking, was it one kilometers or was it one point five kilometers? I wasn't sure, and that was the key point of this execution.
0: So you're you're, in the, you're you're flying this right now. You've got a lot of stuff going on, and you're you're trying to remember one specific detail so you don't get penalized when it comes to the turn point. How close you need to be?
1: Yeah, I, I was sure it's better to take the, the penalty points of five minutes. Instead of climbing because it would take much more than five minutes to climb to enter the five hundred meters radius.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so I would prefer take the penalty and go home. but I couldn't remember exactly what was the, the distance. I thought it was one kilometers, but I wasn't sure and I wasn't at this point, I wasn't concentrating on flying. I was just thinking about this fucking rule. Mm-hmm. And actually, I wrote down this rule at advance of the competition, all the special rules of the of the Grand Prix, because this was the first Grand Prix I was flying. There was two seconds penalty if you're one meter too high or one K too fast at the start point and so on. And also this rule was... 500 to 1000 meters to get the five minutes. And in the morning, as I recognized the problem with the turn point, and that was a big fall, I didn't look after this rule to make sure what is the distance.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I was unconcentrated, flying around an edge of the mountain, and I got into a lee. I I recognized it pretty soon, I turned away, And I saw, oh, that's getting really close. And then I get ground contact with the tail or with the fuselage, I don't know. I I get airborne again, and I feel the airplane is still flying. In the IGZ file, you see where there was a ground contact. It was a noise sensor for about three seconds. But there were no decelerations, so I just hit maybe some bushes and riding above the bushes.
0: So you you literally bounced off the ground.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get airborne again. And, and your feel, your okay.
0: airspeed, you're doing what? But uh, it how... was around
1: it was around 100 k. Wow. And um, then I saw a really small ridge coming close to me, and I thought. Oh, shit, you won't make it above this ridge, most probably. And the next I can remember, I woke up at out of unconsciousness in the wreckage. Wow. But it was just a couple of minutes, because the first thing I did, because I heard the Alex was still working, so I made some radio calls for the others. I didn't get an answer, so I thought maybe it's just a, a receiver not working. So I repeated the, the calls, but also the transmitter was wasn't working, so nobody hears me. But I called after seven minutes after the um, the crash. I called my wife at the phone, and after that, Markus Geisen, who was also in the competition, uh, he was a task setter in Worcester and said, okay, I'm still alive.
0: So you didn't lose consciousness?
1: Yeah, I was about maybe for five minutes. So I can't remember the final impact. Mm-hmm. And I woke up in the wreckage. But therefore I called seven minutes after the um, the crash already on the phone so
0: it couldn't be too long The unconsciousness people talk about accidents like this while it was happening was time standing still for you or or how was it feeling what was everything going quickly or slowly how did that happen
1: you mean the accident or the
0: rescue the accident
1: no actually that was real time i i can remember everything uh, i have a look to the egc file and everything makes sense
2: hmm.
0: and your last thought when you saw that ridge coming was it oh shit i'm No, I, I i thought oh shit that gets
1: close you might not get over it mm-hmm. And then you woke up. And then I woke up, yeah. So I didn't remember the last contact. Actually, there were another two contacts we saw on the file. The next one was a, at about 80 Ks. It was a real hard one. And Ace Janka told me, he thinks that at that point, the fuselage uh, disappeared. Hmm. And then the last one was about was 60 or 70 K. Wow. And I was really lucky because there were a lot of rocks over there, and I didn't
0: hit any one of those. So
1: I had at, at least ten billion uh, guardian huh. angels you know, to get it's, away. It's interesting
0: lot. when somebody's had an accident like you've had. Some, but there's still luck involved. You're lucky you didn't hit a rock. You're lucky you survived. Other people would say it's bad luck that the whole thing happened, but there's good luck as well.
1: Yeah, there. I'm really happy to be alive because normally, if you see the wreckage, you won't even think about it that anybody can survive an accident like this.
2: Hmm.
0: So you're, you're in the cockpit. You've been able to call your wife and the contest director. Are you able to get out of the aircraft? Are you stuck? What, what's going on at that point?
1: Uh, actually, it wasn't a real cockpit. It was totally destroyed. And I, so, okay, I feel everything, everything, I can move everything, and had some pain in the back, mm-hmm. and though I thought, oh, maybe it's better not to move too much because of uh, getting paralyzed, but actually there was something uh, in my, my, my back as well, and so I had changed my, my position and it just rolled to the side and then I was out of the cockpit. So you can imagine how the cockpit looks
0: like. Wow. Nothing left. Nothing left. It says a lot about the design of the JS1.
1: <laughs> Actually with an old, with it not a crash cockpit which is now in the new modern gliders like the JS1. And an older one, maybe in Cirrus or in LS-1 or something like that, I wouldn't have
0: survived. Definitely not.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: So you've rolled out. You're, you're lying there on the ground. You've made a couple of calls. What, what's happening now? People are scrambling to come and save you. What's going on? You
1: no, know, The next thing,
0: they organized uh, the rescue at the airport. And it
1: took, I don't know, maybe one and a half hours and the helicopter comes two people were coming down to me and they pulled up me in a rope to the helicopter.
0: Wow. They, did they put you on a on a backboard or were Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So real me- rescue medical technician kind of people. Yeah, right. And that probably made a huge difference because if you'd been pulled up without a backboard, you might have been injured further. Yeah,
1: that was really a good rescue. And I'm in contact with the helicopter crew to say thank you because mm-hmm. they saved
0: my life. Mm-hmm.
1: And they brought me to the hospital
0: in Cape Town. Wow. So a direct flight from the crash site to the to the hospital?
1: No, actually not. The first flight was just down to a sports field in Villiersdorp because one of the two guys coming out of the helicopter stays at the mountain because they were not able to take all three of us at the, at the rope. Okay. So the helicopter goes back to the mountain, pick up the other guy, and then we flew to the international airport at the, at the base of the helicopter um, mm-hmm. um, crew. Mm-hmm. And from there, I went with a
0: car with an ambulance to the hospital. Now, you, you know at this point you've survived. You know you're injured. How, how worried are you at this point? At this point, I was under influence of some pain
1: medicine, so I don't really uh, uh, recognize what's going on, actually. Mm.
0: And then you're in hospital, they diagnose what's, your back is injured, and, and from there the, the process starts of getting better, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And I was really, really lucky. That was just the second, lumbar was broken. There was a little problem, with say aorta, and the spine was blooding. But it was just minor problems. Wow.
0: Now, I was recently reading uh, Sailplane and Gliding magazine, and I saw an ad in there for this high-impact foam that they suggested for a lot of glider pilots to be sitting on in the cockpit. I- is that something you think we should be using, or did you have something like that in the cockpit?
1: Uh, I don't
0: have one in this chase one,
1: but I do have one in my Quintus, and we do have in all our club gliders. Hmm. Do
0: you think that would have made a difference for you? I don't know.
1: I don't think, actually, because the final um, the final context there was the fuselage was just open, and there was
0: nothing. I was
1: just riding on my back.
0: Wow. Good. And and the, the wreckage has been recovered as well, I imagine?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It was recovered
1: also with an helicopter, I think, two days later.
0: Hmm. Now, you're an extremely experienced person glider pilot, commercial pilot. Um, what can less experienced glider pilots like me learn from your accident?
1: Yeah, actually, the problem was I wasn't concentrated on flying. I was thinking about other things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the point you have to learn. You have to be concentrated on flying for all, totally, for 100%. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're flying close to the mountain. Mm-hmm. So actually I was thinking to look in the internet with the handy about this rule and I said, oh no way at all, you don't look at the internet at your handy while uh, flying close to the ridge. So I skipped this idea yeah. <laughs> yeah. for security reason. But actually <clears throat> I wasn't concentrated just about because I'm thinking about this bloody rule.
0: So how do you, f- I mean, again, you're a super experienced pilot, and you know all these things, and how does it, and it's not about you, many people make these kind of mistakes, and I'm trying to think about how do I stop myself from doing this. Was it complacency? What, what do you think happened that you, that you let your guard down? Actually, it was a kind of complacency, yes, of course.
1: But the problem was the situation was a competition. Stress, extra stress. Go to this turn point. Mm -hmm. In a normal flight without any competition, it wouldn't make sense to fly here. So it's not working this mountain, let's go to the next one. Mm
2: -hmm. Hmm.
1: And actually, I said I've never flown a competition in mountainous area, just small intern. Uh, competition at our home airport, but i don't f- i never flew a Rieti or vino because I always said it's too dangerous to fly competitions in the mountainous area
2: hmm.
0: Hmm.
1: and then it happened to be exact it's my first big competition
0: hmm. well i'm I'm so glad that you're <laughs> that you survived this crash it's it's uh me too yeah <laughs> it's uh a hell of an experience to be able to walk. You know what's that? You know the old cliche. Any, any landing that you can walk away from is a good landing, right? Yeah, actually, I couldn't walk away. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. But, Matthias, tell me a little bit about your your love of flying and gliding in particular. How how did you get started with gliding?
1: I started as I was fourteen because my father was glider pilot as well. And so actually, I grew up at the glider airport.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And from there, you progressed into becoming a commercial pilot and all that stuff? Yeah,
1: yeah, ex- exactly. Then it was, my wish was, okay, let's do my profession, like my hobby.
2: Yeah.
0: And so I, as so I was
1: um, finished with school, I'm like, uh to Lufthansa. And I was, was, no, I was 21. I went to the Lufthansa Flying School at Phoenix. Nice. But
0: you kept gliding the whole time. Yeah, yeah. What what is it about gliding that that kept you uh, hooked? That you know you didn't start power flying and forget about gliding?
1: Actually, I don't fly motor airplanes, um, single airplane, single uh, piston airplanes just for towing airplane, yeah. uh, gliders, but for me it's it makes no fun to fly from one airport to the next one, take a coffee and fly back.
0: yeah, I hear you yeah, yeah. gliding is to
1: use the energy of the wind and of the sun, and you can fly fifteen hours just with the energy of the nature.
2: Mm.
0: And there's a beautiful experience, yeah, of course
1: it's 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 the best sport you can do. Yeah.
0: M- Matthias, finally, what, when do you think you'll be back in the cockpit, and, and has the accident had any impact on, on how you feel about gliding, or are you apprehensive about getting back in the cockpit? Talk to me about that.
1: That's a little difficult to say because it's a little bit far away for me. I don't even think about it. When I can go back to the cockpit, I definitely will go back to a dog cockpit. Mm-hmm. I will fly the first flights, of course, in a double seater. Mm-hmm. But what I can't say right now, what happens if I come the first time close to a ridge? Maybe I get totally panic. but maybe it's everything business like usual, like the 7,000 hours I have in the, in the Alps, mm-hmm. and I make a a good analysis what happened, but actually I don't know what will happen right now. But I don't think about it because it's too far away. Right. Well, I my just concentrate to get uh, get better, get out of the hospital. That's that's the, the thing I'm thinking about.
0: Well, I, I wish you all the luck with a, a speedy recovery, and uh, my my hunch is that when you get back in the cockpit, everything will be fine. So I I, I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. All right, Matthias, you you take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Matthias Schunk spoke to me from Murnau, Germany. A big thank you to Matthias for coming on the show and talking about his traumatic experience. Glider pilots belong to a small tribe, and when we can learn from what others have gone through, it could potentially save our own lives. I know when I start to fly here in the Rocky Mountains this spring, his advice to always aviate... Fly the glider will be front of mind. Should have checked Skysight. I'm sure we've all heard from fellow pilots who've missed a great day because they didn't check the right weather app. Skysight has become the go-to weather application for glider pilots around the world. It's tailored specifically for glider pilots by crunching the last-minute weather data for up-to-date forecasts that can't be beat. If you're interested in trying out Skysight to maximize your cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. 2022 was a stellar gliding season for Dutch pilot Jeroen van Dijk. On May 28th of last year, Jeroen had an early morning launch in his LS3, and by the end of the day he was in the Czech Republic, a flight of just over 1,000 kilometers. Not one to rest on his laurels, Jeroen flew another 1,000 kilometer flight three months later. Jeroen belongs to the Amsterdam Gliding Club, which is located on the former military airfield at Susterberg. I reached Jeroen at his home in Austerlitz, the Netherlands. Jeroen, congratulations. What a fabulous season for you. Thanks, Harry. Yeah,
3: it was a great uh, season for us.
0: So, listen, take me back to last May, your first 1,000-kilometer flight. You must have been watching the weather pretty carefully to uh, look for a day to, to attempt this flight.
3: Yeah, it was something that was already on my list for a long time. And, uh, well, the weather was looking very good earlier that week. And, uh, yeah, I was starting to get some feelings about how about going to, going for it. And, uh, I started uh, arranging, uh, uh, some uh, capabilities for starting early in the morning.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And, uh. Every day, uh, I keep looking at the weather and uh, of course, because my, uh, my, my task was not going to get back to Sustabair and uh, I had to find someone to retrieve me over that distance. So I, uh, I started looking for someone and uh, I was happy to find uh, Leonard uh, able to, uh, to retrieve me uh, over that distance.
0: So, so you had a plan, you had the logistics in place, you had the glider, you had an early morning tow pilot. Now you're just waiting, waiting, waiting to see if the, the, the weather comes together as well, right? And, and then you launched?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I uh, Actually, we launched already at nine o'clock in the morning, which is actually, I, I have never done it before. Huh. And uh, <laughs> there were cumulus everywhere.
0: At, at nine in the morning, wow. At
3: nine in the morning. And it was it was so strange to start that early because the first thermal you get you you were just like is it going to work or not <laughs> and and then there is two meters per second and uh, okay well that worked out pretty well we're going for it mm-hmm. and uh, but you can imagine I, I took a tow up to one thousand meters so uh, I uh, my first thermal was already somewhere where I couldn't get back to Susberg. Okay. So it was kind of a small risk, but uh, with that cumulus clouds, it was uh, it was very good.
0: So you're, you're on your way to the east uh, towards Germany. Did you have an idea of where you wanted to end up already? Was it going to be Germany or the Czech Republic? What, what was your plan at that point?
3: It was... Uh, my, I, my first plan was to end up in Germany uh, and not in Czech, where I ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first turning point was the... Uh, border of uh, uh, Austria, Czech, and Germany—that that three uh, borders—and mm-hmm, then go? get where they come together, and then uh, head back into Germany, and then land safely somewhere halfway. Mm-hmm. Or and then uh, I had some backup plans because uh, if if I couldn't make enough uh, speed, then I could always go back to Czech or Austria again. Right. So. Um, but my initial plan was uh, was to keep and uh, an, uh, <laughs> keep it a little bit closer to Susterberg and land in
0: Germany. Right. So, is your retrieve crew already on the road as you're heading towards the east?
3: Yes. Yes. They, uh, uh, Leonard, started driving uh, around ten, I guess, or, or eleven. Just just a couple of uh, hours, minutes uh, after I started.
0: Okay. And, so... uh so put me back in the cockpit, it's two hours into the flight or something. I mean, I guess you've now crossed into Germany. Are the conditions getting better and better as the, as the sun gets higher and higher and the heat increases? What, uh, what was the situation?
3: Well, the first part was actually the worst because, um, when I got out of the Netherlands, um, it started a little bit, yeah, a little bit overcast sometimes. And there was a, uh, some couple of rain showers in the north and i was a little bit guessing if i would go and head farther east or should i go south and at that time i was around Borke or, or, or ham or something and i i started to get some rain over there mm-hmm. and in an ls3 and rain that's not a very good Combination. So I, I was luckily to be around an airfield and I could stay up over there, mm-hmm. um, but I, I wanted to manage to, uh, you see, I was a little bit um, in doubt if I should go south to the Sauerland, but I must pass between two airspaces or I should go farther east. And at that time, I wanted to go south. But after I stayed up for, I I had to struggle for at least 15 minutes. That range hour was in the gap that I wanted to use to go to the south. So now my only option was to go and farther east,
0: Mm -hmm. which I did. You mentioned two things here. You mentioned airspace and, and the LS3. We're used to flying in big open areas in this part of the world where you are, there's lots of airspace issues, right? So you're weaving in between various zones to be able to get east, is that right? Yeah, exactly, yeah.
3: And uh, there are a couple of glider sectors which you can use to pass some TMAs or mm -hmm. uh, CTRs, Mm -hmm. but uh, um, the first glider sector was closed, so I had to move farther east where I come to the airfield where I struggled a little bit, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, after my struggle, the the gap was close to the south, so I had to go farther east, and that was another little issue because there was a major overcast coming from the north, and I had to, um, yeah, go just a little bit around the corner of a CTR, and there I got, yeah, I found myself a little bit low, actually.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, uh, yeah, I... I struggled to get there, but, uh, to get out of there, but, uh, it was tight, but I managed <laughs> And from there on. It was uh, actually, uh, it, it's it got, kept getting better and right. better. So, uh,
0: it, it sounds to me like one of the things that y- you do as a, as a cross country glider pilot, you're, you're constantly adapting to the weather and what you see around you, you're not just focused on one target. You're, you're looking at what's happening and making decisions based on what's ahead of you, right?
3: Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then there's the airspace as well. Mm -hmm.
0: Right, so between those two things, rain showers in one direction, airspace in another, it it starts to, your options start to become a little bit more limited.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I, uh, yeah. So tell me as well, you're flying, I think, a 40-year-old glider in LS3, right? Yes. (laughs) The glider's older than you are. The glider is older than me, yeah. <laughs> and I love it. Yeah. what what uh, is it your own glider or is it a club glider? How does that work? Uh,
3: I I bought this glider with my girlfriend okay. five years ago. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I, I before I owned a uh, Mosquito with two friends of mine. Okay. But uh, we had to sell it. And I wanted to have something similar uh, with my girlfriend, but the Mosquito wasn't. Uh, really suited for her. Mm -hmm. So we started looking for another glider. And uh, we had some LS8s, LS7s at the gliding club at that time. And uh, LS gliders usually just fly very simple. So we just tried an LS3 and we loved it.
0: Good for you guys. And uh,
3: I I love flying uh, competition as well. And uh, I love to fly club class. So that was uh, another... One situation for me.
0: Right. 15 meter LS3. So there you go. So let's get, let's get back onto this, this cross country flight that you're on in your LS3. The, the performance range on, on that aircraft, the faster you go, it starts to drop off. Right. So you've got to watch your speed as well. Right.
3: Yeah. Uh, you shoot, but, uh, it's very good glider at high speeds actually. Okay. So I had it filled up with water. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, when I started at least, um, after I got a little bit close, uh, or a little bit low at Paderborn, I, uh, I dumped a little bit of water
2: mm-hmm.
3: because of my elevation, uh, at that time. And, um, uh, but you can manage uh, to to fly up to 180, 180 kilometers per hour.
0: Hmm.
3: That's uh for a
0: four yeah. year old ship. Like who, who needs the, the brand new ones, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So, when did you know or, or start to feel confident that you were going to get this thousand-kilometer flight in the bag?
3: Oh, uh, only just a couple of kilometers before I landed, I guess. Really? Because it, it didn't really go according to plan, uh, especially that the first part uh, until Paderborn was. Uh, it, did uh, you can uh, I? Uh, I started with a. Uh, Backwind of 30 kilometers per hour. So, when you've yeah, normal cross country flights, you fly like 80 to 100 kilometers per hour average. So, I was a little bit uh, calculating with speeds about 110, 120. And now it's only 80 or, or, or 90 kilometers per hour. So, I had to pick the speed up a little bit. And, uh, after Paderborn a little bit, yeah, you know, I, I came to the, what they call the revenge tracker and, uh, that, that part was really good.
2: Wow.
3: So I managed to get some, uh, some very really good speed. Now this and,
0: fl- flight, it took you 10 hours. How long did it take you?
3: Yeah, 10 hours.
0: Huh. And when you finally, w- once you had the thousand kilometers at that, did you want to keep going or did you decide that's when you needed to land?
3: No, that that's when I was really overhead the yeah, airfield. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I had to zigzag once, so I was in check. Uh, uh, after uh, yeah, I managed to pick up some speed and I, I went to check, um, but I got into some uh, outspread again. So I thought this is the time to turn in and, and go for the zigzag. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I head back against the wind. And, uh, well, until I, yeah, I think uh, the bad weather was again, uh, and I, st- I started to notice that my speed was getting uh, really low. So I, uh, I turned with the wind in the back again, and I, uh, I had some contact with my uh, retriever, Leonard. And he said, uh, do whatever you do to manage to get the 1000 okay. hour. And uh, <laughs> so I had straight for check and uh, and, yeah, it was even there. It, it well, uh, The first time I went to check, I got the same weather. So the outspread again. The uh, overdevelopment, yeah. The overdevelopment, yes. And uh, I managed to climb up to, uh, about uh, 2,700 meters, I guess. Mm-hmm. So with some wind in the back, I could fly around 90 kilometers in a straight line. Nice. So I was just thinking, well, this should work.
2: <laughs>
3: and, uh, I can manage to get to one airfield and maybe a little bit of climbing somewhere else, and then uh, yeah. So I tried, and I I find another climb somewhere halfway, and uh, around that point, I uh, I was seeing that I'm going to I, I was going going to make it.
0: Now, the moving map display makes all the difference right because you don't really know where you're going but that computer's got all that information in it are you is that how you're selecting your field or where you might be landing as you're looking ahead
3: yeah yeah at that time yes wow
0: i i I don't know if you started out gliding i you know i started in the analog uh part of my flying (laughs) career where you know you still still had to have a map in your lap and a little spinny wheel to figure out what your final glide was going to be so it's it's uh sure helps you to have these tools in the cockpit, especially the moving map display, I would imagine.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It helps very, very much. And uh, especially with all those air mm-hmm. nowadays that, uh, you, if you, if you haven't got it, then yeah.
0: Yeah. It's almost impossible <laughs> to do with flight it's like almost... this so without a moving map display. you know, Yeah, it, exactly. you'd, you'd make yeah. mistakes with a paper map. I can I can't uh, imagine how that would work nowadays, so. So you landed this airfield. Is it a gliding club? Where did you land?
3: It was a uh, gliding club and a motor club, Mm -hmm. and uh, it was a trunk of each. It was a very nice, uh, very nice small club, and there were like four guys Mm -hmm. sitting there over there, and uh, they were walking over to me and they said, "Where are you coming from?" (laughs) Uh, (laughs) "From the Netherlands." "No, that's impossible." "Yeah, sure, I am." "Okay." So they were thinking, uh, so I was asking, why, why why did you fly today? No, there was too much wind, so we couldn't fly. Okay.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, this what? this pilot from Holland shows up uh, at their airfield.
3: Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, almost a couple of minutes against sunset before sunset.
0: Wow. And then I, I guess you have to wait overnight for your uh, retrieve crew, for Leonard to show up?
3: Yeah, Leonard was actually uh, close by, and wow. he uh, showed up. I think two hours after I landed.
0: Oh, that's pretty good. He, he yeah, dri- he drives fast.
3: He drove very good. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> hey, so this this whole experience for you, um, when you landed, did you? W- what were you feeling when you landed?
3: Uh, anxiety. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know. Yeah, it was just all the, yeah. I was relieved that it worked out, although it wasn't really my task, but, uh,
0: yeah, I was happy with it. The goal was the thousand kilometers and you did it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How many, are there other Dutch pilots that have flown, you know, from Holland out to the Czech Republic? Is that, I I can't imagine very many Dutch pilots having done that.
3: Um, I actually don't know. You see, we have those, uh, we have one competition, um, not once a year, but every two years, and it's called Euroglide, okay. where you fly with all other gliders so one giant trip through Europe. Maybe there was another uh, flight that that's somewhere in that uh, range of of uh, flight.
0: But but this was a pretty damn good record flight, as far as I'm concerned.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was very good, yeah uh it's now uh the new record. is now i I didn't actually make it a thousand for the record Mm
2: it was
0: 989
3: kilometers for just record
0: right so it 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 wasn't a complete thousand kilometers
3: no but But for me it was
0: yeah 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 i i agree i agree (laughs) hey so um a few months later out of sousse to you did another thousand kilometer flight or close to a thousand kilometer flight in, in the LS3 as well, except that was another yeah. return, right? Exactly. Yeah. And talk to me uh, a little bit about that flight.
3: Uh, conditions were I, I, a little better, but quite similar with some overcast some sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, and I had the goal to have an auto return of 800 kilometers. So, first leg 400, second leg 400, and then uh, for there, it's a Dutch record as well. And um, I managed to get back quite early, and it was very good. So, I <laughs> I just thought, yeah, well, we'll see what what we can what we can manage next. So I I started to go south a little bit. And, uh, it, it was just
0: very good weather <laughs> and
3: it, it kept climbing everywhere. It was crazy.
0: So for, for our listeners, you, you, you know, Susterberg is sort of in the middle of Holland, not too far from Amsterdam. I think on this flight, you headed east again into Germany and then sort of yep. worked, worked your way back towards, uh, Susterberg. Is that right?
3: Straight east. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So. It was essentially 500 out and 500 back is what you managed to do that day? Uh, 400, 400,
3: 400 back, 400. 400 out, 400
0: back. Okay. And what was the total distance on that flight? Uh, 1026 kilometers. <laughs> Pretty good. So in, <laughs> in, in one summer you've had two amazing flights and one that actually did cross the thousand kilometer threshold.
3: Yeah, both, but they both were beyond the thousand threshold, but, um. Um, for the, for the Dutch record, it mm-hmm. wasn't. Right. So okay. it was for, for like the, the online, uh, contest. Right. On. Wow.
0: What a, what a summer for you. So what, what. It was a very good summer.
3: It, yeah. Have the
0: gliding conditions gotten better in Holland? I, I remember when I flew there back in the late eighties uh, or something, I don't know. The weather was okay, but it was, I don't really I remember anything brilliant.
3: Yeah. It keeps getting better and better. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's probably got something to do with uh, it's it's keep it's getting drier as well
2: mm.
3: each summer is drier and uh that last year spring was really dry as well
2: mm.
3: they they had some some water issues uh in summer here in holland so uh i think that's got to do something with the bad with the good weather we had uh, last year mm.
0: So and uh yeah. Your, your room. What, what are your What are your goals for this coming season? You've You've just started flying again. What uh, wh- What are your goals for this year?
3: Well, I know I still haven't got the thousand uh, declared tasks, so that's now on my list <laughs> because I know it's uh, it's able. Like, it, yeah, it's doable with with getting back to Suseberg. Right. So uh, that's that's on my list and. Uh, yeah, I'll fly some competitions. Good for you. The nationals.
0: In your forty-year-old glider, and you're killing it. Yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, it's a little bit tweaked. Put on some winglets. That's an official modification, but uh, I like tweaking it.
0: Right. I did notice those winglets on that uh, on that ship. Is, is that a, a standard modification for the LS3s?
3: Yeah, it's, um, actually two years ago or three years ago that, uh, that modification came out mm-hmm. and, uh, I was already on the list. So I, I, I noticed that they were working on it and I said, yeah, I want some. Does because that,
0: does it actually make a difference or is it something that just makes you feel better when you're flying?
3: Uh, it, it really makes a difference with, uh, especially with thermaling, huh. uh, you can feel it's, it's more stable. You can fly a little bit slower and, uh, and even a little bit steeper if, if, if you, if you like that, but, uh, yeah, I well, can,
0: uh. Y- Yaron, con- congratulations on Gannon on having such a fabulous season last year. I, I hope you managed to, uh. 3,000 kilometer flights this year and get your declared thousand kilometers. So, uh, th- thank, <laughs> thanks Hopefully. so much thanks. for telling us about these flights and, uh, good luck this coming season.
3: Yes. Thanks, Harry. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Okay. And we'll, we'll talk again soon. I hope.
3: Hopefully. Yeah. If I, if I manage to get three 1,000s, then, uh, we'll talk again. <laughs> we'll talk again.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. You take care.
3: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Jeroen van Dijk spoke to me from his home in Austerlitz, the Netherlands. If you want to see what his flights look like, go to weglide.com and search for Jeroen van Dijk or the flight number 160672. That's 160672. That's it for episode number 39 of The Thermal. I will be back again in April with another show. It's been a long winter here in BC's Columbia Valley, but the snow is starting to melt and today I saw a queue over the mountains. I can't wait to start flying again. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at thethermalpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.